Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Podcast episode 70 for November MMXIII. Yes, it is both the month of Thanksgiving and my birthday. So, what a wonderful month. Episode 70 is brought to you by this public service announcement. <coughs> this is gonna be the best looking bike in the block. Ooh, I don't feel so good. Hey, Ezra, don't you know you're not supposed to use spray paints without lots of fresh air? All paints, and especially spray paints, have poisonous gases in them. If you breathe too much, you can get very sick. We didn't know. Always read the label carefully and check for warnings before you start any job. Wouldn't hurt to wear these masks either. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, 
Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are January's Batgirl number 27 and Birds of Prey number 27, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Finally, Backworld Oracle is brought to you by TweakedAudio.com, high-performance, noise-reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSAVES get 33% off their whole order, plus free worldwide shipping. TweakedAudio.com. Plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Well, we do have a couple comments from listeners, primarily off of the Halloween set of episodes. So first up, we have from Jacob. And let me just give you some background on this character. Jacob happens to be a former student of mine, which is sort of weird to say. He was, when I first uh, started my job, he was in my Latin 2 class, and then he went on to Latin 3, and then last year he came back to AP Latin, and now he is gone. And at that time, I think it must have been during, maybe slightly before AP, uh, is when he discovered this whole backroll to Oracle business. So there are only two students that know about it, uh, both of them being former. And uh, those are the type of people that I'm okay with and I trust, but generally I don't tell anyone else that um, I'm on a particular, that I have this podcast here. A couple students in my current AP class actually know that I have an album out, <laughs> Bubba Moose album, obviously, but uh, they don't, they, they want some hints as to how to find it. I'm like, you're never going to find it. So anyways, just want to give you background on this character. I'm actually very close uh, just with his entire family. Not really sure how that happened. His department chair, I, I like to say, is my best friend there where I work. Or my my department chair is his father. There you go. And he is my best friend. But uh, for him, apparently we're not we're not friends yet. So maybe one day, maybe when I leave this job, uh, we will finally be able to be friends. But close with the mother and then the at least two, two to three of the children. Uh, I have yet to have two of them. And uh, I guess, you know, those relationships will grow over time. But anyways, enough about these people. So he uh, he says hello. He really enjoyed the Halloween BTO episode. The thing I am most scared of, just in case you mention these on the November episode, is definitely the Borg. Yes, actually, whenever you say that B word, he will start flipping out. And I, I don't know. His face goes this ghostly white, and he covers it up as if he's weeping and frankly I'm a little concerned I both laugh and pity him um, which perhaps maybe I should just stop stop torturing the poor kid but uh, the Borg obviously is from Star Trek Insurrection you know it it is freaky especially the first scene where you know you see Captain Picard and the whole eye thing I don't know if I have such an issue with the the B word there as uh, Jacob does. But anyways, he is very frightened. I will attest to that. Hey, it's funny that you mentioned Independence Day because I just watched that last weekend and the dissection part was so creepy. But what scared me the most was that my dad freaked out. He did this indescribable gasp for air and yelled at the top of his lungs. Oh my. We own it on VHS and he said that part has always scared him. So it's just funny to imagine my department chair uh, gasping for air and yelling at the top of his lungs. Uh, we then have two comments from Chris Carnes 
Barnes. First from episode 68, he says, Fine show. I agree with you about the ID revealed to Jeff. What was going on there? Poor thinking. And in a few scenes, or a few issues, we'll get that this scene where Batgirl is jealous of Supergirl when she appears. And then that's his last appearance. Oh, well, there's a spoiler there, because we're just about to do that um, of this episode. Like you, the blob scared me as a kid. I actually saw what could be perceived as a sequel called Beware the Blob before the original. There was a Batman connection there as Burgess Meredith, the Penguin, did appear in the movie as a vagrant in an uncredited role. If you liked the original, I would recommend seeing this version. I didn't care for the 80s version where the blob was not something that truly came from space, but rather a governmental warfare experiment. A TV show that scared me as a kid was an old show called Kolchak the Night Stalker. Darren McGavin starred as a Chicago print reporter that happened upon a different monster or paranormal threat in each episode. The recent remake of the series didn't fare so well. I do have to say that just that idea really seems like it's taking flight nowadays. Certainly with Supernatural, that's really been going strong. I think it's its ninth season. Sleepy Hollow, which I actually really enjoy. I was just, you know, going to take it, take a chance just on a whim like oh let's see what this is probably not going to be good but you know what's one show and and the pilot and I actually really enjoyed it and it's heavily steeped in in revelation and you sort of have the two witnesses and they're they're fighting the the horsemen of the apocalypse right now they there's death and they did have pestilence uh but they were able to defeat him so much so far but it's actually really interesting I do recommend it but it does seem like sort of these paranormal things really are are ideas and subject matter that people are enjoying nowadays and then on episode 69 chris says nice show i enjoyed tom again as a guest and liked what he brought to the table one would think the caliber of villains joker and penguin are that they would have teamed up numerous times they did team up on the 66 tv series but in the comics there are not a lot of joker and penguin team up stories for the from the golden age and 50s the joker and penguin teamed up just once in batman number 25 cover dated october 1944 in a story entitled knights in knavery both with k's there the rare story was reprinted in wanted issue number two an early 70s dc title that reprinted stories that featured various dc heroes versus villains the greatest batman stories ever told volume one and the dark knight archives volume six Good luck on the 5K, or depending on when you read this, great job on the 5K. Well, thanks, Chris. You know, first of all, I just have to applaud you. He recently made a comment on a recent TBU episode, and just, like, his knowledge base is just amazing. And, you know, I compared him to JR on Spider-Man Crawl Space, but he really seems like he's got his history down with Batman and just being able to, to pull this stuff that I, I have no clue about is pretty awesome. Uh, but thanks for the, the, the luck on the uh, 5K. I did run that. That was um, maybe the second or third weekend in October. And my first 5K, you know, I had done the Mud Run, which was four miles. I did the Tough Mudder, obviously, which was 11, and then this 5K. So I thought, oh, okay, well, I, I'm not too concerned with it. And uh, I finished 2730, which for me is like, you know, a PR just because I'd never done it before but now I'm just my appetite is really ready for more races I sign up with a track club that meets every Saturday at 8 a.m. which yes it is tough to get up at 8 a.m. and they run and there are different groups depending on where you are in your running but it's preparing you for a 10 miler that happens in March and I also sign up for a 5k on Thanksgiving in my hometown uh, where my more my parents are living so lots of races there but I'm I'm excited I mean I'm hoping my uh, 
you know my knee holds out it just like starts to get tight for whatever reason I think part of the reason is my left leg is slightly shorter than my right I don't know what's going on but uh, I sort of deal with it and the coach you know is saying all the time if you've got injuries and an injury is whatever happens on one side of your body then you need to come see me and if you don't come see me I'll be really frustrated so I guess I should probably come see him and, and talk to him about stuff but I just always you know, if you get it from the show, I don't know if you know really my character, but I just try to solve things on my own, and, and I guess that's really not the way to go about it. But uh, but thanks for the luck there. Uh, just training training well, and as far as I can tell, and hard as and loving love it. I don't know. I love activities and stuff like that. So so very cool. Well, I think that is it. Uh, I really appreciate comments coming in, uh, <laughs> especially with with things that that frightened other people I'm glad it wasn't just me the other student who um, I was talking about not Jacob but the other one he uh, now he, he comes in and like harasses me about you know my top frightening movies he talks about it and laughs about it he, he thought maybe it'd be funny to put some balloons on my door no no not at all we'll see what happens to him that's all I have to say well let's just jump into reviews what is really interesting is it seems like ever since the murderer the Barbara Gordon murderer and let's talk about pre-52 here we've all of a sudden went from one issue storylines to back to splitting them up and across more than one uh you know the last issue murderer was maybe three issues long i mean obviously there were some clues that that spread over several other issues so in total that storyline could have been four to five then we had the strange hunchback business which was two and now this one spreads over three issues and so it's very interesting that we've we've gone from this format way back when and then we moved into single issue stories and now we're back into splitting this so I don't know what that says about Batgirl and and what she's doing perhaps people were really writing in and wanting to see her covered more and and better stories with more page count because as one of my main complaints has been that you know when you only have 10 pages and I feel like she wasn't even getting 10 pages in these stories that it's just tough to tell a story like that and and a lot is glossed over and forgotten or put in the narration it just goes by too quickly so perhaps this is the way to solve it I guess we'll see but uh, first up we have detective comics number 508 attack of the annihilator the cover date was November 1981. Writer Carrie Burkett, penciler Jose Delbo, inker Joe Giella, letterer John Costanza, and colorist Carl Gafford. Also in this issue is Secret of the Sphinx Sinister featuring Batman. So we first see Batgirl and she's meeting with Jeff and uh, he's working on her bike but she also says that she's just really concerned about his safety and that she needs to find a better way to come and go from his shop. She then has to speed off and give a speech on behalf of HRD, where she works, to discuss prison reform, uh, which there's just a lot of problems going on because there's a lot of overflowing with the prisons and just a lot of perps being arrested, which I guess is good and bad. Then we have geologist Kenneth Anderson, and he's conducting an experiment with a strange rock, which he says contains incredible energy properties, and it ends up transforming him into a hyper-evolved man with mind-over-matter powers. 
So Barbara Gordon sees a TV report of the carnage that Anderson, who is now calling himself the Annihilator, causes, and she becomes Batgirl to try to deal with him. But she's very hard-pressed with this villain who wishes to dominate humanity, and then Supergirl pops up. So the girl Steele, who had been in town as actress Linda Danvers on a promo tour for Secret Hearts, which is a wonderful little soap opera that she's in, saves Batgirl and attacks the Annihilator, only to find him absorbing her own great power and rendering her senseless slash unconscious. And this is continued in Detective Comics 509, The Fires of Destruction, covered 8 December 1981. Writer again, Carrie Burkett. Penciler Jose Delbo, inker Joe Giella, letterer Tom Ziuko, and colorist Milton Snappin. Also in this issue was Nine Lives Has the Cat, featuring Batman, Catman, and Catwoman. Menage a trois there. It was pretty interesting. There was some shipping going on. Batgirl deduces from the physical reactions of the Annihilator that he is absorbing Supergirl's energies, not her powers. Thus, she safely swoops down under cover of a tear gas pellet. She actually puts in her nose plugs this time and snatches Supergirl away from him. She uses Supergirl's invulnerable body as a shield against his power blast. Let me read that again. She uses Supergirl's invulnerable body as a shield against his power blast, which happened to wake Supergirl up out of her unconscious state. After another brief conflict, the Annihilator teleports away. Supergirl tells Batgirl she will remain in town until she and Batgirl have captured their new foe. Later, Supergirl does a favor for Batgirl by carving out an underground passageway to her new secret garage. And this is also where it seems like Jeff is quite taken with Supergirl, and Batgirl admits some jealousy for that. And meanwhile, the Annihilator perceives that he has undergone a second evolutionary change. He now wants to rebuild Gotham City after he destroys it, and will repopulate it with beings like himself, which he will create by blasting normal humans with a ray powered by his energy rock. Batgirl and Supergirl track the Annihilator down through a clue, but the Annihilator is ready for them and intent on making Batgirl his hyper-evolved mate. So there's a shipper there, but I would probably say between hot and not, that's a not. And this story is concluded in Detective Comics 510, Bride of Destruction, cover date January 1982. Writer Carrie Burkett, penciler Jose Delbo, anchor Joe Giella, letter Tom Zuko, and colorist John Costanza. Also in this issue was Headhunt by a Mad Hatter, featuring Batman. Supergirl warns Batgirl in time for her to avoid the Annihilator's ray blast. Both of them confront the villain, who blasts Supergirl through a wall with his ray. He scatters a resulting fire through the chemical plant in which he worked, and Batgirl and Supergirl are forced to let him flee as they put it out. They find him again before long, evolved once more, and harder to deal with. But Batgirl deduces that heat is what triggers his evolutionary jumps, and uses a stream of water from a nearby fire hydrant, and a puff of Supergirl's super cold breath to revert him back to normal human form. Supergirl leaves Batgirl with the Annihilator, and both heroines agree that they'll have to work together again before long. The end. So I actually have a lot of comments here just about this entire story. Some are sort of nitpicks and some are story issues. So, you know, I'll just sort of go from start to finish. I am glad, you know, I talked about just this random reveal that Babs had uh, with Jeff. And I thought, isn't this a bad idea, especially just him being in danger? But I am glad to see that, you know, in this beginning that 
she's thinking of some way to secretly come and go to his garage for his protection. So at least she's thinking more about this. I like that Babs is making speeches again. It really felt like she she was getting back into the political game, which she's she's been out of for a little while, and obviously she was having this. She's been down on herself, and you know, even though her father was trying to help her out, she she really I think needed this sort of boost of confidence, and other people. I think it was great just that um, there were people there supporting her. I like that her talk was about overflowing prisons, and I think that this is something that we continue to have issues with in in comics, and it's not only that the heroes are doing their jobs and they're being put in, but there's also this revolving door with prisons and with Arkham Asylum and, and Blackgate and things like that because they go in, but they also come out. And so it's not only the question of the prison and how to maintain it, but how do you keep them in? those sorts of things and of course I you know that's something that I ask in my comics class just the fact that how do you deal with this revolving door and is it better because this is just something that you know Red Hood is going to really I say is going to because I know that there are people listening that have not read that yet uh, namely from my H period class but Red Hood is going to bring this up to Batman just the fact of why don't you get rid of these villains because they're just going to go out again and they've hurt people that you love so I don't want to spoil anything for those that haven't read on Under the Red Hood or seen it but uh, I, I think it's a good a good thing to talk about and ironic actually once you think about it because Babs is the one that is making this speech and of course we know what happens to her with this revolving door with the Joker I, too, was caught off guard with Bob Barton's compliment. I mean, he gives her a compliment. So it was fitting that he followed it up with a proverbial slap in the face. You get it? Because, of course, she slapped him. I love the cameo by Linda Danvers on the soap opera uh, that appeared on the TV. And, of course, Doreen returned. She's been a little absent. I still question why she's even there. She should be in jail, in my opinion. And is she really a friend of Babs? But, I, you know, I wonder how big... Uh, a character this Doreen is going to get. Coloring issue, if if you're reading this uh, along with us, we've seen blue eyes for Babs for a long time, and here we have green eyes. It'd be interesting to trace, just to see the artist, and, or the colorist rather, perhaps, and who is giving her green eyes, who is giving her blue eyes. So the colorist sort of changed. This was John Costanza, as well as Milton Snappen and Carl Gafford, but the green eyes really we saw with Carl Gafford, so it'd be interesting to see if he has also colored other Batgirl comics in the past. So we have another big-headed villain, uh, but he doesn't really seem to be as much of a brainy bad guy as maybe the leader or I think his name is Hector Hammond that we saw in Green Lantern. I mean, it all, at the end, it sort of seems like he's got the smarts, but compared to like other people that that really pride themselves on their intelligence, I feel like it's more he's got a big head and maybe his IQ is raised but how do we know that he's smarter or more intelligent than he was in his regular human form so it's kind of strange he just seems to me like a, a villain that's out of control and angry and he's got absorbing powers and for me this was just too much of a knockoff villain because it just seemed like we were pulling pieces from other people okay he's got this big head okay so got Hector Hammond um, okay he's got these uh absorbing powers 
that's great we've got parasite so check 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 who knows and then you know moments after you get powers are you really going to just go out of your way to attack a lab out of spite but hey I guess this is what the Green Goblin did in Spider-Man but I, I just feel like villains need to better think their priorities once they actually become a villain I love that Supergirl swoops in and gets Batgirl just out of nowhere. And, you know, if you've listened in the past, you know how I just got a kick out of random appearances. And, man, this was convenient. But for me, you know, number one, I love just that Supergirl is in this story and that we've got another team up between them. But it doesn't seem as random for the sheer fact that her alter ego has already slipped into the story. I think just that little detail that Linda Danvers was on the TV and she was talked about by Doreen and Babs. Just that little detail made it realistic that she was in town and she was able to do this. I was very glad that Batgirl actually put her nose filters in this time when she dropped the gas palette because, of course, that didn't happen when she was trying to subdue the hunchback. Oh, man, let's talk about this. What a terrible friend. Uh, using Supergirl as a human shield so she won't get blasted. So Supergirl is already weakened. Batgirl, perhaps at this time, doesn't really recognize that her powers are absorbed. I mean, I don't think at that time she knows. It's after, really, that she realizes uh, he's been absorbing energies. But she's weak, and this is what you do, and the blast revived her. I mean, that was just, like, the most terrible thing ever. Let me pick up this person who could be on the edge of death. I don't know. And I'm going to use him as a human shield. Ridiculous. I can't believe <laughs> with friends like these who needs an enemy. I'm surprised that Supergirl didn't realize that he was taking her energies or her powers. You know, you f I, I imagine that you would feel that. And I feel like Superman at least knew when Parasite was siphoning his powers. Though I seem to remember perhaps in Earth 1 Superman, Superman was getting weak, but he didn't really understand why. So if, if that's true anyways, I could be thinking about something else. But I guess in that case it is believable. But I just don't know why you would question like what is happening when... Perhaps you should feel what's going on. I don't really like that the Annihilator, a new villain, is able to take on two very experienced heroines and really adapt to them and take them down. It seems unbelievable. I think that every villain should really have some trouble in the beginning fighting others. I mean, especially this guy who is basically like a lab rat kind of guy, and then all of a sudden he gets powers and then he can take down these females that uh, are pretty experienced and well-trained? I don't really think so. And then, you know, he evolves, and, and I think perhaps too quickly. He may have mental powers, but I don't think he he's the brightest villain that we've ever seen. I do like that Batgirl asks this critical question, where was Batman uh, throughout this whole thing? She even says, you know, he was, Annihilator was on all these screens on TV. Where is he? And then, of course, he's gotten out this time. Supergirl explains that, you know, he's out on a space mission with the JLA. So, uh, you know, good call there, editors. I love that Supergirl carves out a hidden area for Batgirl's cycle. And uh, somehow she gets a hydraulic lift in there. Can't explain that. But, you know, I think Batgirl is definitely getting closer to just becoming Batman in this way, having secret entrances and things like that and allies like this. But I don't really know where her last secret spot got to that connected to her apartment building. If you remember, it was like in an alleyway and this brick part like rotated up and popped out. I remember it with like a mob story. I just don't, I mean, have the writers forgotten about that? I feel like we saw it once, once or twice, and then it's gone. Batgirl airing her feelings over being sh overshadowed by Supergirl was an interesting thought. And I feel like this is more often going to happen with a female character than a male character. But it is interesting just, I think, again, targeting 
Barbara and just how she's feeling right now because I, I you know she, I've said that she's stronger I think now and perhaps more in control and more confident but I, I don't think she's completely there and, and I think that this shows she she still sort of questions how how well she thinks she's doing her duties and things like that and so I guess a little jealousy is there and and I guess perhaps that that seems right but I, I am also thinking, you know, I mean, they're friends, and I think maybe you're, you would more admire a friend that you would have, like Supergirl, rather than be jealous of her. So, you know, I've got conflicting feelings over that particular panel. Suddenly, Annihilator turns into Ra's al Ghul with this second, I guess, evolution. He's, he's wanting to destroy Gotham so that it can be rebuilt and house a great race of future beings. And, you know, suddenly he has precognition and sees Batgirl and Supergirl coming from him. This is what I'm talking about. Two, two fast evolutions and just giving him all these power sets, I think it's a bit ridiculous. And, and we've, we have this whole God thing, I think, uh, or this God complex, I guess we should say, come up before in, in the previous issue. This is really in the second part of the story. But it, it continues, I think, with Annihilator desiring to change Batgirl and use her to repopulate the Earth. And let's just say that's just gross. Uh, I feel like Supergirl should have spotted or at least heard him sooner before he even fired, not waiting to the last second then pushing Batgirl out of the way. It's silly for Batgirl to even try to use her pellets to extinguish the fire. I mean, if you saw, it was it was a huge blaze and she's like throwing these tiny pellets. That's ridiculous. I'm surprised she isn't choking from all the smoke and I was even more surprised that Supergirl sends her out to find Annihilator alone. So I guess this is how Supergirl repays Batgirl for using her as his human shield. She sends her to some possible death. Batgirl makes a joke about wanting to lose weight, but your method seems a little extreme to Annihilator. And I had to read this a couple times and look back, you know, to a couple panels above and try to figure out what's going on. So I was wondering, given his smallish legs, because then I, I looked at his legs, I don't know if it was perspective or not, but is all the weight from him just sort of traveling to his head and like that's what's making it grow so is his brain really growing or is it just getting fat questions that i wonder hello convenient bricks uh, they just happen to be in an alleyway with bricks lying around and then supergirl builds annihilator in with with a house of bricks and then he basically becomes the big bad wolf and, and blows the house down which i guess that's actually not how the story goes is it because he was unable to be use his breath to blow down but it worked in this case and then poor annihilator i mean he gets stopped by a fire hydrant and supergirl's super breath and then he reverts back what a detail Batgirl explains that he evolves when exposed to heat. So first we have Supergirl's heat vision and then the fire that happened in the lab. So she thought cold might have the opposite effect. Hmm. I feel like science, as Donovan would say, doesn't always work that way. Not necessarily opposites like that. I feel like it would have been more complicated. But hey, easy way to to get him out of the way, I guess. I mean, three issues. Maybe it's going a little long. Let's get rid of him. Hey, we're going to do this. But what an anticlimactic ending. You know, Batgirl explains how she solved it, and then Supergirl flies away, saying she hopes they can do it again sometime. Number one, can't they finish in their civvies talking away as friends? I mean, that's what I hope and desire. And number two, why would you wish to work together again when that obviously means there will be some evil trying to possibly kill you? Maybe not the best uh, wish to have. 
I actually really enjoyed this story, perhaps mostly in the fact that it brought Supergirl and Batgirl together again. You know, a team which I think really has some special attributes, and it's something that I've enjoyed in the past. I didn't really care for the villain. You know, he was easily powerful, easily defeated, too many pieces of other villains. Did he deserve three issues? There could have been something or someone much better for these two ladies, especially since Annihilator caused them to do some downright weird stuff. <coughs> Human shield. <coughs> uh, but really, I, I think I'll give it 8 out of 10 bats. Mainly, you know, that team-up, I think, is really what pushes it forward. Well, we'll see. if I, I feel spoiled now. Chris spoiled it. But do, do we see Jeff again? Is he gone for good? I guess we'll see when we come back next month. But... Let's look at the near future now. I'm going to take a short break. When I come back, I will review Batgirl number 24 and Birds of Prey number 24. And there will be a special review. I guess two special reviews, really. But first, we've got Zias's Radio Hour featuring Reunited by Peaches and Herbs. See you later.
and welcome back. Hopefully you weren't too turned off by those uh, very romantic tunes and words and everything. But I think that it went really well with our Birds of Prey issue that we'll have. But first up, after a month break, we're back with Backroll. And this is Backroll number 24, Backroll Wanted Part 2 of 3, Dragnet. Writer Gail Simone, pencils Fernando Pissarin, inker Jonathan Glapion, and colorist Blonde. Gotham City Public School, number 68. Babs, in black stealth outfit, holds Ricky as he bleeds out from a bullet wound suffered at the hands of Commissioner Gordon. Harvey tells Gordon it was a righteous shooting, and Tiro calls it poetic, and Rolo is just as distraught as Babs is. The cops start to round all the gang members up, but Babs decides she's not going down and fights the cops for a second time. Babs realizes that only one person could have provided Tiro with an expensive gun, most obviously Nightfall. Babs nearly punches her father before running off. She then has an emo moment. She decides not to ever, ever, ever forgive her father. She slashes some tires, and then she runs to a train yard, only to get held up by Detective McKenna. Now, McKenna doesn't know that it's Babs, and Babs asks her why Nightfall would be arming a gang of street punks with high-tech weaponry. So she just goes on a whim, says, okay, well, I don't know you, but I'm going to trust you with this information. So it's called outsourcing. And the idea is that Nightfall arms a gang with superior weapons. She gives them surveillance equipment and expertise. Then they inevitably wipe out every other rival gang in their territory. So a few months later, the aide stops. She arms someone else the same way. And this is what happened between Roll and the 68 Kings. McKenna ends up letting Babs go after telling her that Nightfall now has new firepower, which is busted out of Arkham and Blackgate. So we don't know what this is, but we can only guess. So Babs walks home in some street clothes, and Alicia tells her that her father has called several times. While making some tea and, and cookies, Alicia asks why Babs comes home from long nights with bruises and totally exhausted. Too bad she's already asleep. Gordon goes home and stares at a picture of Babs. At Gotham General, Babs goes to see Ricky and finds his mother there, who is on the verge of a breakdown. Woman on a verge. Ricky is in a coma, and no one else can see him. Babs says she can try to pull some strings, and then her dad calls and calls and calls, and he's drinking beer. So it's distressing when someone drinks alone, I'm told. So... I guess we should be worried about this. Babs finally decides to come see him while at his house, Mirror attacks. He fights back, and we see Nightfall explain to Michael, who is standing outside of Gordon's house, that Jim is a good man and his death must be messy. Yeah, because that makes sense. So Michael asks why, and she explains that he's on to them since he went directly to take down a gang after speaking with her. He must die, and it must look like a gang did it. So inside, Gretel, Grotesque, and Bonebreaker all attack Gordon, while outside, with all the electricity and communication down to Grotesque's and his powers, which we still have no idea what they are, Babs drives up, sees the power off, and notices Bleak outside her father's house. She realizes that her father's not alone, but she doesn't have her black breaking and entering gear, only her Batgirl suit, so it looks like she is going to suit up one last time uh, and next we have Becquerel in year zero what's the first thing that I have to comment on and this is something also that really hits in Birds of Prey is just this issue with DC and and how they lay things out from month to month because issue 23 we had back in August then we had our our villains month with everything so there was nothing now we have 24 
which technically came out in October. Then we're going to have another month off in November, and that's going to be the zero year. Then we'll come back with this final part of Batgirl Wanted. And it's tough, maybe not with this one, to follow along. I had to refresh my memory on what happened with Birds of Prey. That wasn't as bad. But there are some books that it's really difficult to keep track of from month to month anyways. And when you have gaps in between issues, it is even more difficult. And it's really jarring to go from a storyline to something that is not related, back to a storyline, back to something that's not related, back to a storyline. So I just wonder sort of what they're thinking. Could they have continued on with these issues and these storylines while they were doing uh, Villains Month? And yes, the focus was on the villains, but of course Batgirl didn't have a standalone villain issue, so she could have continued on. And if you think about it, Everything that happened in Villains Month, the stuff that's happening with, you know, Arkham War and uh, Forever Evil, all that stuff seems like it's not even related to these books. Like it's completely, it's in continuity, but it's not relating to the continuity that we're dealing with. Because especially in Nightwing, we're not even dealing with the fallout that he was unmasked. So if if you're skipping... (laughs) stories in order to go in the fold of these larger DC publishing-wise stories, then why aren't those uh, moments, those plot lines being put into the actual book? So, I don't know. I feel like if you're doing Forever Evil, then why not just continue on if if that's how you're going to play it? But So I just wanted to talk about that because that was sort of a point that I had for both this one and Birds of Prey. What's interesting is, and I'm going to discuss this even more when I talk about the Nightwing annual, is just this um, characterization of Babs here, and I feel like I talk about it all the time, but look at this over-emotional response that she has. I mean, she is, it's very much death in the family, Batman mourning over Jason Todd, it's very much Superman mourning over Supergirl and crisis, crisis on Infinite Earths, just like bewailing the fact that, quote, her boyfriend is shot, and he's not even dead i i still don't understand why she's weeping after one date she's weeping to the fact that he's her her boyfriend but then she just goes crazy she starts wailing on the the cops i mean she could have made a queen getaway and then she she's just in this rage it's almost like this berserker fury that wolverine goes into she's just seeing red all over the place and almost hits her father and then she starts slashing tires which i assume so that she can get away and and there's not going to be anyone behind her but it just is over the top i mean i think there are many alternatives to what she could have done and yes you know someone that she cares about potentially her boyfriend is sitting there and and almost dying but are you going to go after the cops like that that just doesn't seem like the right play for me and and it's just over emotional and then saying that you know I'm never ever ever going to forgive my father for this and this is just a bad situation for the book to be in because Jim Gordon obviously is angry at Batgirl who happens to be Barbara Gordon and Barbara Gordon's upset at her father now for what he's done and again you know this relationship that we had pre-New 52 was wonderful and and I always talk about it it's it was just great how when he knew who she was he was really able to uh, lift her up when she was down and and even when he didn't know it, it wasn't this negative back and forth between the two and and this is just a, a terrible relationship that we have here 
I think as we continue further on down this this path, this storyline, it does really seem like perhaps Jim Gordon is going to learn her identity. And I'm wondering what the fallout is going to be. If he doesn't, number one, Jim Gordon ain't no fool. And <laughs> I, I think it, it'd be silly to continue on in this fashion and have him not recognize who Batgirl is. But the fact that she turned around right when she was ready to punch him and they stared at each other, eyes were locked. I mean, that's a good five seconds probably that they were there. Of course, it's comic time, so you can't tell how long it is. But if you have a daughter, you love her, you are living with her obviously for many years. If you do not recognize your daughter through her eye, like looking at her eyes and her face, even if it's covered up by a um, balaclava, then there that's just foolish so i i it it really seems like he has to know who she is by now i think in his heart he's really trying to doubt it really trying to hold it back but in the end something has got to give and and so that my my prediction is that he's going to find out or he's just going to confess it but the question is what is the fallout going to be because it, they're it, they're in a really bad place right now are they going to be able to move past this or is it just going to be a terrible uh, relationship from now on and just her keeping secrets and them just a rocky, rocky road? And, uh, you know, Dustin over the, the Batman universe said when he finds out, he's just going to be really angry. And, you know, I, I can obviously see that because of everything that went down. But I just think that he has got to let the, the fact that his son has been, quote, killed, even though he, he's still alive and in Suicide Squad right now, he's got to let that go. And, and I still don't understand this 180 switch from, you got to get my son, he's a, you know, a serial murderer and a psychopath, to you killed my son. I mean, he was ready to use pretty heavy force to get him off the streets anyways. So this is just pretty hypocritical. And maybe in the back of his mind, he knew already that it was Babs, and maybe that's why he's just so upset said that it came down to her taking him out and uh, Jim wasn't the one to do it. I, I don't know if, if that could at all play into it. But again, Jim Gordon ain't no fool is what I'm saying. So he's got to find out right now. But I, I think the, um, the fallout is the main question. It's just how are they going to move past this? So I, I, I've been talking about the disgrace just coming all together and remember in the previous issue there were so many plot lines but they all somehow very conveniently were wrapping together and this obviously is just continuing that wrapping together quickly but now we're sort of getting rid of some plot lines so it, it doesn't seem oh, I don't even know what the best word would be but it, there were so many threads and, and hitting in places and making it very convenient and, and overlapping and now it's overlapped so much that it doesn't seem as convenient now but still thinking about the previous issue I'm still gonna say that we're really forcing our hand here but the disgraced all comes together for this purpose so Nightfall makes this leap and says well he's gotta be on to us because he was here checking the security things when he doesn't I, which I think is if she's supposed to be such an intelligent person I think that is a terrible leap to make because obviously if he's in such emotional trauma Jim Gordon that is she should realize that he's doing it to get rid of Batgirl and, and perhaps connect to Ricky though maybe that'd be a stretch for her to realize about Ricky but again it seems foolish that she would think he's on to her because he would probably really show his hand at that point. So she gets all these people out, uh, which, you know, maybe some people have been clamoring for, maybe they thought was going to happen anyways, and uh, they all come together and they all start to wallop on Jim Gordon. And, oh my word, I just think it's an underwhelming 
and too heavy of a response. It's underwhelming because you would expect all of these supervillains to come together and take out Batgirl. But instead, they go to a non-powered, and yes, given Batgirl is non-powered, but a non-powered uh, civilian, basically, policeman, Jim Gordon, he's off hours, he's been hitting the booze. <laughs> that's really the purpose for getting them out. I mean, my thing would have been use these disgrace, just like Sinister Six, have this huge gang, and then go after Batgirl, which it already would have been a struggle. But Batgirl had issues with all these different super villains individually. And then we have Jim Gordon. I like to call him Jim Gordon 2.0 because he's like able to hold up against them, hold his own against them. And that is just plain ridiculous. If she's struggling and she's got, you know, all these gadgets and she's got protective layers on and and then we've got this guy who's somewhat under the influence and fighting against these super charged villains i think that's pretty ridiculous so i'm a little disappointed that uh, this is the reason that we're using these guys it's a lackluster issue you know you feel bad for ricky and his mom and everything but that's sort of shoved to the side with everything else that's going on and then it's even more shoved to the side when when you think about night wing the annual uh which we'll talk about later but you know i'm wondering what part three is going to be like and it's going to be two months until we even find out so are we going to remember and is it going to be a disappointment because it's the third part is Jim Gordon going to find out and if so what is going to happen six out of ten bats next up we have birds of prey 24 together again writer Christy Marks pencilers Romano Molinar and Robson Rocha breakdown Scott McDaniel inkers Jonathan Glapion and Eau Claire Albert and colorist Chris Sotomayor Background Strix watches the helicopter flies away, carrying both Canary and Condor, when suddenly a man randomly climbs up to the roof, calling himself a friend and representing some benefactor who wants to help. This guy's apparently an ex-detective, and he knows many details about Batgirl's current situation, i.e. Jim Gordon and James Jr. Uh, while Batgirl doesn't feel good about this, she knows her friends are depending on her, and she decides to go on faith. When the birds get back, Batgirl will learn more about this mysterious benefactor. At Gotham International Airport, Batgirl and Strix get a ride. The crew will provide what they need and stand by for extraction. Meanwhile, Dinah is still in shock over finding her not-so-dead husband, Kirk, when Regulus sneaks up on her. Mmm, situational awareness. Bad, bad, bad. We discover he is also a former teammate of Dinah's while she was on Team 7, named Dean Higgins. Even though he apparently died on Gamora, uh, does anyone really die in this book? Higgins actually found himself lost on Gamora with Kaizen and his psychic children when Dinah's power turned the world inside out and fused Higgins and Kaizen into one entity. He was born with a new purpose and took over Basilisk. He asked Dinah to serve him and be with Kurt or die. So, hey, hard decision. Condor is awoken by his ex-flame, Cyclone. While she puts on the charm, he is more concerned where Dinah is. So she's not getting anything. Uh, she gives him a tour. He catches up with Hammerdown and Whipcrack in such a loving way. Not. And he wonders why all the civilians are in lab-like rooms. Apparently, Regulus has found a way to turn powers on and off. He has used it with Uplink, and we see the after effect of her using the powers as she sits sick in a bed with an IV plugged in. Back with Batgirl and Strix, Batgirl tells the pilot to leave them if they don't make contact after two hours. The tandem 
jump from the plane has Strix laughing and, and really enjoying herself. But the chute gets caught in the trees and they have to make a rough landing. But Batgirl uses her jamming gear and stealth to get the drop on several guards. As they move through the compound, they also find innocent civilians and send them back to the plane for pickup. Batgirl and Strix move further in. Condor wants to get reacquainted with Regulus, and Regulus explains to Dinah his final plans. He's learning to control Kurt's brain because through him he can control powers, and he wants to turn off superpowers permanently, keeping humanity safe from Dinah's kind. Hmm, pot and kettle here, pot and kettle. And he's going to turn Kurt's dampening power into the ultimate weapon. Dinah and Regulus then tussle, and Dinah worries he can actually do what he says. Elsewhere in the compound, his flunkies discuss the fact that they should have killed the birds while they had the chance. Sicklin tries to kiss Condor, but he stops her when he sees Strix and Batgirl doing the peeping Tom, and he gathers the group to intercept them. Round two. And next up, of course, and annoyingly, we have Zero Year. I think something that's really become regular with this book, and, and not to say that it's bad, but it's just that it's steady, and there's really nothing amazing about it, nor amazingly bad or really bad or anything. I do have to say that it was pretty noticeable when the art changed and then changed back. And not to say that the segue section was bad, but I always feel like a seamless art transition really is ideal. What a bizarre plot detail that this random man is climbing onto the roof and offering his help. I mean, this is a total Dobby move, Dobby from Harry Potter. It's way too convenient, way too random. And, you know, this detective, he knows every detail about Batgirl's situation with Gordon and Gordon Jr. I mean, it just smells bad. Who is this benefactor? Why is he so willing to help? Why wouldn't Batgirl turn it down even in these extreme circumstances? I mean, there's got to be another way. Why not ask Batman? I mean, even if you are on bad terms with him, which, again, don't understand it. At least you can trust him, and, and probably he can give you some way to get over there. But this is just way too convenient and bad. I've got a, a problem with the continuity here. When does this take place? Why is Batgirl... Remember that Batgirl sped away, and then she had that tussle with James, and then they came back. So essentially, I guess it's before Batgirl wanted, but I'm just concerned that she's in this suit, whereas elsewhere she's she's got her, um, as Donville likes to say, her Babs girl outfit, but it's just sort of that, that breaking and entering suit that she's got. So I wonder about this. It's interesting to see Condor get reacquainted with his old teammates, but I think that section really moves the slowest. I mean, it's just a bunch of verbal fighting between the men, and not a lot of information is given. We really get the majority of pivotal information from Regulus. Uh, but of course, I feel a little behind because perhaps some of this stuff happened in Team 7. But it, it does give enough of a recap to get us up to speed. So Regulus's origin seems really crazy, but his plan does, you know, it seem, seems like it's well thought out to a certain extent, but it's crazy as well. Um, you know, using a power to turn off powers, which is pretty ironic, and it's something that happened in Avengers Academy as well. I guess Regulus is really using the civilians as experiments, but it seems, well, which is something actually that they did in uh, the Young Justice TV series, but it seems strange to pull one out and then put them on the team if in fact that's what Uplink is, because Uplink did really seem very green, green as in like a new member when, she, when we first saw her, so perhaps they're finding people with potential and then just dropping them on the, the team. 
Of course, we are led to believe that Condor has betrayed us all, uh, but I seriously doubt that is what it is. You know, I, I think that his round two comment really means round two against his former team. So he's with them, but then I think the next issue is going to turn around and start throwing punches towards Hammerdown or somebody else. Oh, and P.S., I am so tired of women throwing themselves on Condor. I mean, enough already. I can, you know, I guess a little romance in a book is fine, but this team has enough issues already. Uh, so I, I, that's why I really don't like a man on the Birds of Prey team. I think they just need to, like, have relationships outside the team or just focus on what they're doing. But at least it's not Dinah this time, but he's all fixated on her anyways. I look forward to the conclusion of the story and to see what happens with Kurt. But unfortunately, we're actually interrupted by Zero Year once again. And, and you know, we're already interrupted. So let's hope we can remember what's going on. And let's see what Zero Year has in store for us. I'm going to give this 7 out of 10 birds. Next up, I've got a special review by Donovan. Hey, kids! Don Grant here. And today I'm pinch hitting for Stella and covering a Babs appearance in a non-Babs title. Oh yes, this is Nightwing Annual Number 1. Written by Kyle Higgins, art by Jason Masters with Daniel Simpieri and Vicente Sufuentes. This issue begins with who we later learn is the Firefly, burning a man to death as well as his entire home. Elsewhere, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon are packing up for Dick's move to Chicago. After finding an old picture of Batgirl kissing Robin, Babs asks Dick if he ever wonders what things would be like for the two of them, if their timing wasn't always bad. Before they go any further, the back signal shines and Nightwing and Babs Girl answer Detective Bullock at the roof of GCPD headquarters. They learn that Cindy Cook, a popular actress, has had everyone and everything close to her burned to a crisp in the last few days. Witnesses attributed the arson to a flying man in a metal suit. The dynamic duo talk with Cindy, who suggests that the killer is Garfield Lenz, a pyrotechnician from her movies. The man killed at the beginning was Ted, Cindy's ex-boyfriend who she always wanted to get back together with. We next see the set of The Swordwalkers 3, The Reckoning, where the director is accosted and threatened by Babs' girl and Nightwing. He tells the location of Lenz's loft, where Dick tells Babs that they should perhaps use the time they have together left before something unexpected comes up. They find a list of targets with the last one being a charity dinner, but when the two in the GCPD SWAT team case the building for Firefly, Dick realizes that it's a decoy and runs to Cindy's apartment where she's being chased by Firefly. After a fight, Firefly bombs the apartment, killing who Dick thinks is Cindy, but is actually her agent, Amy. Ugh. Through a large leap in logic, Nightwing and Batgirl ascertain that Firefly is really Cindy's ex-boyfriend, Ted. He's faked his and Cindy's death in order for the two of them to start their lives over together. Nightwing and Babs' girl beat him up and save Cindy. Once everything's said and done, Babs tells Dick she's ready to give their relationship a try. 
However, the next morning, Dick's already on the road to Chicago. Babs calls, and they both resign to the fact that they can't make it work for now. The issue ends with the scene from the photo playing out with both Robin and Batgirl in happier spirits. Anyone can change and settle down, even you. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> As if. So, what's there to say about this issue? Not much, really. Reading the solicitations, one would think that this would be the biggest, shippiest Dick and Babs issue since uh, Nightwing Annual 2. But that's not found here. Honestly, it's very bland, and yet a strong sense that DC is very unwilling to put these two characters back together again. They might like the idea, but not it actually happening. I mean, let me read the solicitations to you, like, right now. Quote, Robin and Batgirl are a group fighting side by side, but with Dick Grayson about to embark on a new crime-fighting quest and Barbara Gordon no longer fighting under the bat, is there anything left between them? Following the Batgirl wanted epic, this is the story of a twosome with nothing left to lose, fighting for only the one thing they can, each other. And that's not really happening here. There are three scenes, very small, practically worthless scenes, where they talk about the idea of them together, but they kind of, they're kind of mealy-mouthed about it. Bab says, oh, the timing's always off. I'm always either paralyzed or wanted for murder or this and that. And it's, it's really kind of hard to buy. You know, I understand, you know, them being preoccupied with different things, like Dick trying to catch Tony Zuko and, you know, Barbara running from her dad, but... It doesn't really feel honest, to be to be fair. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, personally speaking, I've just come off of reading uh, uh, two thirds of the Nightwing series from, uh, you know, obviously pre fifty two with Dick, Chuck Dixon and Devin Grayson, and I've seen I've seen the Nightwing Barbara Gordon relationship done very strongly. You know, I'm not a big I'm a fan of the, I'm a fan of the relationship. I'm not a big proponent of the relationship, as though I would rather see you know them die than be with anybody else. But, you know, I've seen the relationship at its best. And here it's like, you get the sense that DC kind of sees these two as like these destined to be lovers. And that's why them being apart is even harder. So maybe the idea of their relationship will carry the issue. And it really doesn't. For one thing, the artist is incredibly bland, if not flat out bad. It's not interesting. And um, Daniel Simpieri, who I like as an artist, it, he only does one page this entire comic. Just one. Also, I like Kyle Higgins as a writer. I think he's doing a solid job with Nightwing, you know, by and large, even though I'm not reading it anymore. But his Barbara, and this kind of, you know, is a take on Gail Simone's Barbara, who I'm not a fan of. His Barbara's really, like, I gotta, I gotta use the phrase again. It's kind of an overused phrase, but his Barbara is unlikable in this issue, unfortunately. She's, uh, I don't know. Especially when she's, like, you know, in quote-unquote costume. She's very by herself. She's very aggressive. I mean, she threatens to break the director's nose. And she says, I swear to God, I'll break your nose. I mean, she actually says this. Does that sound like something Barbara Gordon would say? You know, it's just, it's very odd. Um... It's just a waste of time. I mean, uh, nothing really interesting happens. I mean, they kind of talk about, you know, why shouldn't we get together? Well, we probably shouldn't. Well, let's get together. Well, okay, let's let's talk about getting together, and then we don't get together, and we both know why. Well, why not? You know, what's an honest reason why? I don't know. I I don't buy the idea that like they're too busy or whatever. That's, that that always feels feels to me like a cop out. And the issue sort of sold on the idea that we're going to get some heavy stuff between the two of them. Hell, every issue that they've been together with since the New 52 has been sold on, on the two of them being together. Uh, Batgirl issue 3, Nightwing issue, whatever that one that was. Like, the idea of these two characters being together is like a big selling point that DC thinks they can kind of get away with. And really, they, they, they can't, honestly. I mean... 
I'm not exactly sure what I wanted from this issue, but I wanted a more of an emotional pull, and I didn't get it. It was basically a big tease, them kind of di- dipping their toe in the water, and you know, throwing around, throwing around the idea of them being a couple, and then not 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 really capitalizing on it. If these two were not going to be together, I wanted a, an honest conversation as to why they wouldn't be, and we we just got lip service really, so that was unfortunate. This new iteration of the Firefly, who isn't Garfield Lens, they actually kill off Gar- Garfield Lens, and it's this character called Ted. It it's your basic, you know, jolted lover character. It actually reminds me a lot of the animated series version of Firefly, which he was after the actress whose uh, movie he was working on. So that's that's there's a connection there. But you know, he's your basic. I'll, I'll kill you, and then he doesn't really do much. So it wasn't really memorable. Garfield Lynch from the original comics, and of course, Batgirl Year One is a maniac. He's a pyromaniac, and he just loves setting things on fire. This guy's just a—he just has a, a flamethrower as a gimmick, and it's not really all that engaging. Um, I would be very surprised if we see him again. So that's kind of disappointing. I mean, this issue sucks. <laughs> um, maybe sucks is, is a harsh word. Uh, it's just not worth your time. It's not really fun to read. The art's not really. Interesting to look at, and even the scene at the end with Robin and Batgirl, you know, you can get so much more in the pre-crisis issues of Robin and Batgirl together, even when they weren't a couple. It's just, it's selling, it's trying to sell you on the idea of Dick and Babs together, and teasing you with the idea, but what, but the tease isn't, you know, uh, foreplay is just flirtation if it doesn't go anywhere, basically. And so this was just, this was just basically, you know, te- please us, don't tease us. <laughs> No matter how dirty that may sound. So if I'm going to go by the BTO grades, I would probably give this a three. It wasn't awful, but it wasn't much to hang on to. So I could probably give it three out of ten batarangs. So that was this issue, Nightwing Annual number two. Not much to really talk about, honestly. Um, hopefully the next time these two characters will appear together, it'll be worthwhile. I'm going to throw it over back to you. So back to you, Stella. Thanks, Donovan. You know, I, I really enjoyed his review, and, and for the most part, I really do agree with him. I, I enjoyed this issue. I You know, I like Firefly, obviously, and I thought it was a, a real nice twist that it wasn't Garfield Lenz, as we are led to believe, but actually the ex-boyfriend, and it was something that I wasn't necessarily seeing coming. I mean, I did think it was odd when you looked at sort of the, the hit list that Garfield Lenz actually was on, and I thought, why are you writing your own name? But I, I still think it was, it was pretty uh, snazzy that you didn't really get it you know the main thing is though yeah we're really meant to believe that this was going to be like a life-altering shipper altering issue with with dick and babs and nothing came of it i think that dc had something going for it and then they just decided to pull back and say no 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 we're not going to do that now whether or not this is just this mandate with you know no one's going to be happy or i don't want dick and babs together sort of situation who really knows a couple big things this really felt almost like the the nightwing annual too which which i haven't done yet but believe me i'll i'll begin to that sometime soon but he slept with i mean if i were to pick the the big point out of it he slept with uh babs on the eve of his wedding to uh starfire and in this one you know they're going back and forth at first babs is really the one that's reticent about it and uh, about you know striking up a a relationship in this particular issue and then she's like you know what Uh, time may never be ripe so we just gotta we gotta take the dive now so she finally decides yeah we're gonna do it and dick is the one to run away and i'm just like are you being serious like this again this happens where something is ready to happen she's ready to to really push forward and then he's the one that takes 
takes the easy way out or runs frightened away and it's just really frustrating because you know it, it just portrays dick in a really terrible fashion which is really unfortunate um you know think about this characterization this babs characterization compared to what we have yeah she's got her problems and she talks about them she does sort of wax poetically about her boyfriend which is interesting because dick still tries to make the move of let's have a relationship i know you're you're in a bad place with your, the boyfriend right now but hey let's do it so that's interesting that sort of ricky's thrown to the side but again i did not consider that they are a boyfriend girlfriend but she's just able to to answer things very calmly she's not going over emotionally she's not freaking out and 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 i think this is really the way that that we need to see babs more often just more level-headed and yeah things are gonna happen obviously but she takes them as they come and she's able to sort of deal with them and you can tell she has a tough time and i think that's that's appropriate but but it's not over the top as as we've seen so i actually appreciate how she's being portrayed here I don't like the fact that, again, we're having issues, or still, I guess, we're having issues with Batman. I mean, you see the light, and she says, or are you, why Why would we be helping him? Something like that. And, and that's frustrating because, again, and, you know, I was talking to Kevin about this. I said, you know, we still don't understand why everyone's upset at one another. And he said, well, it's because he didn't tell them that Joker was in the cave. And, of course, you know, I knew that. But I just answered that, yeah, and we still don't understand why they're afraid i mean batman made a mistake how is that going to destroy everyone's relationship with him i mean i i think that there are far worse things than than saying that well joker was in the case i mean they they don't know his whole career why does he have to explain everything and this is just a terrible thing to say like why why are we going to help batman out with you know the the bat signal is there i mean what I, I just don't understand the situation with the Bat family right now. Uh, my final thing to say is you may be, well, I don't know if you're wondering or not. I, I, you should let me know. Do you, would you have wanted them to get together? You know what would have been the, I think that she should have left and gone to Chicago. I mean, think about this. She's got all this garbage going on right now in Gotham City. Why not just pick up and go to Chicago? Now, obviously, it seems very foolish how he's asking her. Again, the Ricky thing. But if you're reading Nightwing, he's living with two other people. So where is she going to go? She's going to sleep on the hard floor while this happens. But I think a change somewhere would be wonderful for her because she just needs, man, tabula rasa, blank slate for sure, just to start over and maybe not have a relationship. But I think in a different setting, away from all of this, maybe their time would be right and uh, yeah it's just frustrating like what was the point of this if you're just going to dangle this relationship out and then obviously like cut it and basically say jokes on you readers because we're never going to have them together for the most part you know i enjoyed it i think besides the relationship stuff just dangling out there in front of us it was it was a good issue besides all that I, I think I gave it a 4 out of 5 on the TBU cast, so I guess it'd be an 8 out of 10 wings here. I'll do that. I don't know. Let me know what you think, if you enjoyed that issue or not with, with the relationship and, and how it was put forth. Did you find it believable or not? We'll see what happens soon, I guess. Now over to Chris for the Batman 66 review. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Batman 66 review segment. Glad you can make it. Thanks for downloading. Good to be back. I'm Chris, and I'll be reviewing Batman 66, number 3, cover dated November 2013, and Batman 66, number 4, cover dated December 2013. 
both for hard copy release, both originally released in download format. Cover art on number three by Michael and Laura Allred, variant cover art by Cully Hammer. Cover art on number four by Michael and Laura Allred, variant cover art by Chris Sprouse, Carl Story, and Wes Hartman. Our first story in issue number three is entitled The Joker Sees Red, and is written by Jeff Parker with art by Joe Quinones, colored by Maris Wicks, and lettered by Wes Abbott. Our story opens daytime in downtown Gotham City, with an ominous parade balloon resembling Joker attached to a van and being driven down the streets. The Red Hood emerges from the van and pops the balloon, releasing a gas and inducing coughing fits to pedestrians, and demands that the Joker be turned over to him at midnight at Gotham Cemetery. At Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, the sight is relayed on television and our heroes change to Batman and Robin and rush to the Arkham Institute of the Criminally Insane to check on the Joker. There, they are met by Dr. Quinn, female, blonde, new psychiatric specialist for the Deep Security Ward, hey, wait a minute, who leads the duo to the Joker's room. En route, we learn that the Joker is being treated by a machine called the Brain Regulator, a device to curb his erratic thoughts and invented by Professor Overbeck. In order to lure the Red Hood out, Batman and Robin take Joker to the cemetery. The Red Hood and his henchmen manage to snatch the Joker at the cemetery and take him to one of Joker's hideouts. There, the Joker manages to unmask the Red Hood, who is revealed to be none other than a dazed and confused Professor Overbeck. Batman and Robin find their location, having planted a tracking device on the Joker when they sprung him. After a bad fight, we learn that the Joker's subconscious could be projected through the regulator and compelled Overbeck to plan the Joker's escape with the aid of Batman and Robin, unbeknownst to the Joker's own conscious mind. Fans of the TV series may remember the Professor Overbeck character from the Mad Hatter two-parter, The Contaminated Cowl, and the Mad Hatter Runs Afoul. However, in those two episodes, he was an atomic scientist. Still, a nice touch including him. We're also treated to villain cameos of Shame, Egghead, who also appears later in the next story in this issue, The Riddler, and The Siren, while Batman and Robin head to Joker's room. Seeing a version of Harley Quinn in the Batman 66 continuity was intriguing. Mind you, in the TV series, the villains were not kept in Arkham, which didn't appear in the comic books at the time the 66 series aired. It came a few years later in the 70s, but rather the maximum security wing of Gotham State Penitentiary. Was the change necessary to incorporate the Dr. Quinn character? Her appearance still got me wondering, who could have possibly portrayed her in the TV series back then had they cast a costume mall for the Joker? Though not a blonde, I remembered actress Grace Gaynor, who appeared in the Penguin two-parter, The Bird's Nest, The Penguin's Last Jest. If you happen upon these episodes, pay very close attention to Gaynor's voice and inflection. It's very Harley Quinn-esque, especially in the scene when she manages to trip, overpower, and capture Chief O'Hara. I did not care for this story, though. I was really looking forward to a Joker-Batman confrontation, and it didn't happen in the true sense. The story just seemed a means to put a version of a Red Hood and a Harley Quinn in the Batman 66 continuity. No characters seemed to be in any real jeopardy. The threat to the Joker didn't seem that dangerous. Batman and Robin didn't have anything more to do than follow a tracking device and win a bat fight. The Joker's henchmen were not clad in their usual vests and caps. The artwork was nice, and the Joker did have his Cesar Romero mustache, a detail I'd hoped to see. The Allred's cover is one of my favorite comic book covers of the year, and for me, the best part of the issue itself. 
To me, this cover contrasts the classic Neil Adams cover of Batman number 251, where a giant-sized Joker is holding a playing card with a bound Batman attached to it. Batman 66, number 3, and Batman number 251. If you're on your computer right now, as you listen to this, check those covers out and compare. The other story in this issue is Scrambled Eggs. Written by Jeff Parker, art by Sandy Jarrell, colors by Rico Renzi, and lettered by Wes Abbott. Our story opens with our heroes bound and hung upside down inside a giant clear egg, and just Robin being gagged for some unknown reason aboard Egghead's airborne blimp. Yay! Finally a cliffhanger! One panel explains the duo were captured with gas-filled eggs while being lured through the Orphan Circus Folk Fun charity event, a charity obvious dear to the characters. Egghead releases the hero's egg, but in the span of two pages, the duo manage to get free, remotely summon the Batcopter, break their egg, and attach a line to the Batcopter. They pursue Egghead's blimp, seize control of it, and steer to Gotham Penitentiary to awaiting Warden Crichton and her guards. Hey, wasn't he in Arkham Institute earlier? Hmm. Okay, a slightly better story here. Egghead's vocabulary was complete with inserting the egg prefix to his words and his usual egg slant way. The colors were vivid with a bright orange sky and white clouds to give you that sunny side up egg feeling. One change from the TV show to the comic book series, we see the Warden Crichton character, played by the now late David Lewis on the TV series, who later went on to General Hospital, now appears to have changed sex and ethnicity. Overall, I was pretty disappointed with Batman 66 number 3. I had hoped and expected a decent Joker story here and was let down. The Egghead story was filled with some nice outlandish scenery and an improbable escape and pursuit. I really wanted to like this issue, but I am giving Batman 66 number 3 a total of 4 out of 10 bats. The cover by the Allreds was a huge saving consideration. Next up, Batman 66 number 4. Our first story is The Hatter Takes the Crown. Written by Jeff Parker, art and colors by Jonathan Case, letters by Wes Abbott. At Stately Wayne Manor, Bruce and Dick are about to go fishing, and it not actually being a ruse to go out as Batman and Robin, when they overhear Alfred listening to a broadcast from England about a royal guard having his headwear stolen. This sends the trio, with Batman and Robin now in costume, flying commercially to London to investigate. They deboard the plane, along with a foursome that resembled the Beatles. They meet Commissioner Gordon's cousin, a Scotland Yard detective, and drive off in a commissioned, customized British version of the Batmobile. Batman figures the Mad Hatter is behind the crimes and thinks he will go after the crown jewels next. The duo find the Mad Hatter there and the chase is on, but Hatter and his henchmen are ready as they take off in upside-down, jet-propelled top hats. Holy Lidsville! Batman attaches a line to a hat and is dragged along the sky. Robin uses the Batmobile's bat beam to take down the hats. Our last story is The Clock King Strikes, written by Jeff Parker, art by Sandy Jarrell, colors by Tony Avina, and lettered by Wes Abbott. In this story, Batman ascertains that the Clock King has been aiding the Mad Hatter, tracks him to what appears to be Big Ben, and takes out Clock King's robotic knight watchmen, who are these robotic armored knights. The story concludes with Batman deducing that the Clock King is Morris Touch, the Mad Hatter's brother. I was very impressed with Case's art and colors in the first story, for me, this was the best part of the issue. The Mad Hatter is mistakenly called Jarvis and not Jervis in one panel. Holy editing slip. I like how Alfred's presence is explained by Bruce hiring him as a guide, and Batman and Robin flying commercially. I wonder how they got their passports. I am getting a bit tired of these aerial chases, though. We're in issue four, and we've already had three. One with Riddler, Egghead, and now the Mad Hatter. 
Does every arch-villain know how to fly? I found this to be a better issue, but only slightly. I am giving Batman 66 number 4 a total of 5 out of 10 bats. I wanted to close with two comments. Despite two negative reviews, I observed no less than three times that when I've been in my local comic book shop at various times, that I've seen parents attracted to the Batman 66 comic book and literally read it aloud with inflection. And I'm talking both dads and moms. I think that's pretty cool. Whether they're actually buying the book, I don't know. But I am glad this title is getting notice. Second, I wanted to acknowledge the passing of a legend, Nia Cardi, who died earlier this month. Many obits have mentioned his work on Aquaman and the Teen Titans. Now, in addition to those titles, I remember Nick Cardi's work on countless comic book covers, primarily Justice League of America, Superboy, Superman, and World's Finest. And the work he did on those 70s 100-page issues of the previously mentioned titles, Nick Cardi's covers conveyed clever composition, emotion, shock, surprise, and a compelling curiosity that made me want to get and read the comic book solely based on the cover. To call Nick Cardi a legend would be an understatement. He leaves quite a legacy. Things look pretty dire. Can Batman 66 rebound to Chris's satisfaction? Will Batgirl ever appear in an issue of Batman 66? These and other queries to be answered next time. Be sure to download the next podcast. Same Stella time or thereabouts. Same Stella site. Thanks again to both Don and Chris for your reviews, and, and a special thanks to Chris just because he's been been doing these reviews uh, consistently. But it's always great to have Don's voice, if only for a short time, here on the show. Okay, next up is Babs in the Tube. The Adventures of Batman with Robin Boy Wonder. Batman and Robin, dynamic duo against crime and corruption, whose real identities is millionaire philanthropist Bruce Wayne and his young ward Dick Grayson are known only to Alfred the Faithful Butler. Ever alert, they respond swiftly to a signal from the police, and moments later, from the secret cave deep beneath Wayne Manor, they roar out to protect life, limb, and property as Batman and Robin, Cape Crime Fighters. Batman and Robin, scourge of Gotham City's kooky criminals. The Joker, clown prince of crime. The Penguin, pudgy purveyor of perfidy. And the cool, cruel Mr. Freeze. Watch out, villains. Here come Batman and Robin. Remember, this is a segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon and the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently, I'm watching the 1968 Batman Superman Hour, or also known as Batman with Robin the Boy Wonder in the little section that we watch. This is Episode 5, and that's Season 1, Episode 5, Booby Booby, Who's Got the Ruby? Uh, Also contained in this episode were 1001 Faces of the Riddler, The Mysterious Mr. Mist, and The Trap of the Super Spaceman, and it aired on October 12, 1968. Starring Olin Sewell as Batman Bruce Wayne and Alfred Pennyworth, Casey Kasem as Robin and Dick Grayson and Chief O'Hara, Jane Webb as Batgirl slash Barbara Gordon and Catwoman, Ted Knight as the narrator, Commissioner Gordon, and Penguin. There's a high-priced jewel that just arrived in Gotham City, and the Penguin has his monocle set on it. But he's not the only crook out to get it, as the Catwoman wants it for herself. 
After the penguin kidnaps a sleeping, gassed Bruce Wayne, it's up to Robin to free him from the penguin's secret lair beneath Rest Haven Cemetery. But things don't always go as planned, as the boy wonder gets trapped too. Fortunately for our heroes, Batgirl is on the scene and saves our heroes from being crushed by enclosing walls. They meet Batgirl at the dock after Bruce changes into Batman and find Penguin and his gang all tied up. He reveals that Catwoman left them hanging and stole the ruby. After a Batboat chase, our heroes declaw the Catwoman and justice is served. Take a listen. City Museum, millionaire Bruce Wayne is personally supervising the placement of the world-famous Maharaja Ruby. Magnificent, isn't it? Sure is, Mr. Wayne. Uh, what do I do with this? What is it? I didn't order anything else. A statuette of the penguin. How did... Ooh. <laughs> it worked just beautifully. Look like a charm, penguin. Yes. I'll take the million-dollar ruby. You take the millionaire playboy. He'll come in handy as a hostage in case Batman starts breathing down our backs. I see the city's most valuable possession and her wealthiest millionaire and there are no witnesses. Don't be too sure about no witnesses, my fine feathered friend. This map should help Batman find you, Mr. Penguin. Then he can do my work for me. Unaware of the treacherous fate met by Bruce Wayne, his ward Dick Grayson is busily perfecting his boxing skill on the heavy bag. Wait, Master Dick. The bat signal. And not a moment too soon. Uh-oh. And Bruce is tied up at the museum. Uh, try to contact him. Uh, tell him Robin will meet Batman in Commissioner Gordon's office. Of course I'm glad to have your help, Robin. But the enormity of this crime calls for Batman. Especially since his good friend Bruce Wayne was abducted by the thieves. Bruce Wayne? Abducted? That's right. Do you know where to reach Batman? Well, uh, you see, he's uh, out of town on a, a, a special case. Uh, I'll just have to handle this alone. Uh, along with the police, of course. Uh, I'll be running along, Dad. I'm sure the boy Wonder will handle this. With the help of that girl. Uh, yes, Barbara, of course. I'll start at the scene of the crime, Commissioner. And see if I can pick up the crook's trail. Good thinking. I'll go with you. A map of Rest Haven Cemetery? I don't like the look of that. A circle drawn around this grave. Hmm. Might be a trap. I'll have my men surround the place. No, Commissioner. Please. If they find out you're closing in on them, they might harm Mr. Wayne. I'd better go it alone, sir. Good thinking, Wonder Boy. And good luck. Not on your pin feathers, young Robin. I think you may need help. This is it. Now what? Uh-oh, company. 
Hey, Pengy, somebody's opened a grave. Company at this hour? Well, let's see who it is. <laughs> the boy wonder in person. This must be the place. I shall advise Mr. Wayne to expect the guest. Mr. Wayne, I advise you to stand clear of that panel to your left. You're about to have a visitor. Come into my parlor, my little bird. <laughs> What's that? Robin! Oh! Ah, there's a lad who knows how to make an entrance. <laughs> You'll pay for this, penguin. Temper, temper, Mr. Wayne. I merely mean to provide you with company in your final hour. <laughs> Robin, are you all right? Boy, I sure bungled this one. Don't worry about that. We've got to find a way out of here. Forget it, Mr. Wayne. Not a chance. I'm sorry you have to get yours along with the boy Boo-Boo, but that's life. Or should I say, in this case, death? <laughs> What's that noise? I don't know. Sounds like great guns. The walls are closing in on us. Holy nutcracker! How do we get out of this? Looks as if we've got us a problem, pal. I say, we've got two of them. <laughs> Why struggle, gentlemen? You have so little time left. There go the bad guys. Got to find the good guys. Never send a boy Robin to do a Batgirl's work. What, what happened? I don't know, but I'm not knocking it. Batgirl, what are you doing here? Well... I thought you might need some help to rescue Mr. Wayne, but I was too late to stop the penguin. He got away in a helicopter. Bat figures. Wait, I seem to recall his saying something about meeting a yacht in the harbor. Uh, let's go, bro uh, uh, Mr. Wayne. Uh, would you drop me off at Wayne Manor, please, Robin? Uh, sure thing, sir. Uh, Batgirl, you wait for me on Pier 6. And keep the yacht in sight. I'll get Batman and the Batboat and pick you up. I'll be waiting. Ahoy, Captain! South America! Here we come! <laughs> Not so fast, Pengy lover. You? Yes, Pengy baby. It's time to feed the kitty. No, no! I'll take this purloined precious. You felonious feline! Don't think you're going to get away with that! Ah! Hit the deck! Oh, enough of this tomfoolery! What's happening here? What's happening to my head? Double-crossing mangy alley cat... I'm glad you're back in time for the fun, Batman. So am I, for more than one reason. Heads up, Robin. That catamaran's sailing right across our path. Suffering surfboard. Sunday sailors should be made to walk the plank. Ease off, chum. There's the yacht. Ease off more. I want to take them by surprise. Aye, aye, skipper. My, my, look at that. It's Batman. And Robin. Isn't this a pleasant surprise? Well... 
It looks as if someone's beaten us to it. Yeah. Some fisherman sure made himself a catch. Have the comedy cake crusaders let us down. First, Penguin, hand over the ruby. Too late, Batman. That pilfering pusillanimous pussycat stole it from me. And if I ever get the Catwoman... We've got to find her. But where do we start? Of course. She was in the catamaran. Come on. We can catch her with the bat boat. Easy. Let's go. Hey, wait. What about us? Hang around a while, Penguin. We'll be back for you later. Come back, you miserable refugees from a Halloween party. There she is. Batgirl, you take the wheel. Robin, into the bat scuba gear. Come on. Check. Pretty good, huh? The penguin does all the dirty work, and we wind up with the prize. Yes, ma'am. Real great. Yeah. Keep the cat in sight, but don't let them know they're being followed. Roger, Wilco. Hit the drink, Robin. Now. I get a million dollar ruby, and that man is nowhere in sight. Did you ever notice how fast time passes when you're having fun? How about sharing the fun with us, Pussycat? Ah! Oh, you didn't think we were going to miss the fun, did you? The ruby. Hand it over. You can't be serious. Get them in, quickly! Go, Robin, go! A perfect time for me to leave. Show, fellas. Oh, no, you don't, pussycat. Get away from me. Get away. Not on your nine lives, kitty cat. I've always meant to ask you, Catwoman, who does your hair? Mr. Wayne, glad to see you're none the worse for your experience with the penguin. Never better, Miss Gordon. Thanks to Robin. And Batgirl. Of course. Excuse me, please. Dick, does she remind you of someone we know? Yeah. She sort of looks like... Oh, no, it couldn't be. Uh, I guess not. Well, you know... Robin got to take the Batmobile for a ride, so that has got to be special. But really what I liked about this this particular episode is just that this is definitely like a, a Silver Age or Bronze Age, probably Bronze Age, Robin Batgirl team up. And, and I just thought that it was actually fun to see them working together. I do wonder why the, the commissioner or the Robin are concerned that there is a penguin statue in the museum. I don't know if that's like an art issue, but it's like right there and no one says anything. Mm, was that a mistake there? Holy nutcracker. Uh, did he? Did he really? And of course, Batgirl is the one to save the boys, but she gets no thanks for it. Maybe they just thought it was some sort of random thing that happened. You know, doesn't Batgirl think it's strange that Robin is driving Bruce Wayne in the Batmobile? Guess not. And this, you know, this is not the first time that we have seen Pat Penguin and Catwoman both want the same thing. And I also recall an episode of The Batman where we see these two go at it. I think it's called the, the Cat, the Bat, and the Ugly, or The Bat, the Cat, and the Ugly, something like that. Pretty good episode. I do wonder how Batman and Robin 
catch up to a moving boat while we're in scuba gear. And of course, they've got some drag with their um, with their capes. Don't think it's possible. Catwoman expects to escape by swimming away. A little disconcerting there, especially, well, cats don't swim, and they could have just caught up with her. But I like how the guys almost figure out Batgirl's secret in the end because they think, huh, could she? And then they figure it couldn't be her. That was totally a, you know, 1966 Batman move. But um, it was a it was a fun episode. I think, again, there are some weird things that happen with this. But overall, it's it's good fun for, you know, the time period that it's in. Next up, we have Reading with Stella. presents Batgirl to Dare the Darkness by Doug Mensch, a story taking place in the Batman and Robin the Movie universe. Copyright 1997, Little, Brown, and Company, New York. Chapter 4, Fresh Starts. The grandfather clock was a doorway between two worlds, a secret passage from the darkness of the Batcave to the bright lights of Wayne Manor. In the costume vault at the bottom of the rock-carved stairs, Barbara had shed the sleek skin of her back row costume for the last time. Now, in her street clothes at the top of those stairs, she worked a hidden catch and pushed on the back of the tall clock. It swung smoothly inward on silent hinges. She stepped into the manor's great hall, shutting the clock behind her, the measured movement of its pendulum making the only sounds she could hear. She looked around, feeling alone even up here. The butler was now the only anchor left for her. She began moving through the elegant manor, looking for him, listening for the familiar sound of his soft humming. He was in the parlor, but he was not humming. Instead, his manner was solemn, as he carefully dusted the large portrait of Bruce's parents, Thomas and Martha Wayne, hanging above the mantel. His chore finished, the butler stepped back and gazed up at the portrait in silence. It was all he had left of the two people he had served so faithfully. Respecting the moment, Barbara softly cleared her throat only after the elderly man had finally turned away from the portrait. He looked over at her and smiled warmly, his eyes twinkling. He was genuinely delighted to see her, and it was a profound contrast to the treatment she'd been receiving elsewhere. Alfred, she said, I think we have to talk. Certainly, Barbara, he said, shooting his cuffs, then tugging down on the points of his vest, making himself the picture of perfect dignity. Is anything the matter, dear? Yes, you could say that, I guess, she paused and then simply told him, I just quit. The butler was appalled. Alfred Pennyworth had arrived from England when Bruce Wayne was just a boy, and had dutifully served the Wayne family ever since. 
He had been there when Thomas and Martha Wayne were brutally and tragically gunned down on the street in front of their young son. He had comforted Bruce through his parents' funeral. He had witnessed the youth's bitter vow to wage war and crime, to devote his wealth and his life to that war, to prevent the murder of other victims, and therefore the trauma endured by their survivors. It was that very trauma which had shattered young Bruce's life. The boy had resolved to put the pieces back together to form a new and very different man. Alfred had attended the entire process, overseeing the long and arduous studies and training, secretly fearful but outwardly encouraging. He'd seen that he could never change his young master's mind, so great was Bruce's focus and determination. Therefore, Alfred had sought to strengthen that mind with whatever advice and wisdom he could impart. Ultimately, the butler had been there for the birth of the bat, and for the Batman's evolution from rough-and-tumble beginner to world's best in every phase of what he did. He had seen him grow from detective to manhunter to street fighter, willing to use wits, skill, fear, and even force when necessary. Batman became Gotham's guardian and avenging conscience, and Alfred had somehow become his guide, mentor, and servant all at once. Their mission together was not an easy thing to describe, let it alone explain, but now in the soothing confines of Wayne Manor's parlor, Alfred was attempting to do just that, to explain the mystery that was the Batman. You must understand, Barbara, he said patiently, that the Master has become the Bat for all intents and purposes, and that Bruce Wayne has become the Mask. I know it seems it should be the other way around, but it's not. So extreme is the Master's dedication to his chosen cause, at times bordering on obsession, that it has almost overwhelmed any desire for a normal life. At this point, Bruce Wayne is little more than a cover for his true pursuits as the Batman. Barbara watched as the elderly butler, sweetly sincere, waved his hand toward the parlor's walls and ceiling. Even this stately manner itself, in a very real sense, has become nothing but a mask for the Batcave concealed beneath it. So while you are indeed a ward of Bruce Wayne, you see, it is the Batman who— I appreciate what you're trying to say, Alfred. Barbara leaned forward in her chair to place a hand on the man's arm. I think I even understand it. But maybe his obsession is not mine. You've been here so long that you're totally into it, as important to him as Robin is, maybe even more so. But this is all new to me, and mega strange. She paused to gesture helplessly. I mean, it's not like I don't despise crime or anything, but, well, my parents were not gunned down. She looked away. And yet, they are dead. Barbara. Alfred said solemnly, if only you knew how much I regret. I do know, Alfred. You and mother were once in love, after all. Alfred's eyes went distant. She was a wonderful woman, and you're a wonderful man. You've supported me ever since mom and my stepfather died in the car accident. And now you're helping me start a new life here in Gotham, here in this manor. It's just that maybe I should start getting on with that new life. But Barbara... You've already made a splendid beginning as Batgirl, and sorry, Alfred, but let's agree to disagree. In my opinion, Batgirl is just not working out. In fact, she's practically a disaster. But if you could just understand the Batman's motivations, he may be a harsh taskmaster, but he's merely trying to... Barbara held up a hand to stop him. Alfred, you're like an uncle to me, and I love you. But I'm really not interested in the inner workings of a full-grown man who swoops and runs through the shadows, dressed up like a bat. Alfred simply gaped at her. She rose from her chair and bent over to gently kiss his head. Then she spoke softly into his ear. Believe me, I'm extremely grateful to Bruce Wayne for taking me in, and more power to his other half, too. 
Lord knows Gotham needs a dark angel. She straightened. I'm just not sure I'm cut out to be a bat. I love living here in the manor, and I want to stay. But as for the rest of it, no thanks. I mean, hanging by my toes from some clammy stalactite when there's a nice cozy bed upstairs? I don't think so. Good night, Alfred, and thanks anyway for trying. She smiled and turned away, leaving the normally unflappable Alfred with his mouth open, but at a complete loss for words. Barbara trudged up the stairs to the manor's second floor. Despite her firmness with Alfred, she was already second-guessing her decision. Had she done the right thing? How had this situation gone so complicated in the first place? Her debut outing as Batgirl had been sheer impulse in the face of an emergency. To help Batman and Robin save Gotham from icy destruction at the hands of three psychotic villains who call themselves Mr. Freeze, Poison Ivy, and Bane. She'd had no time for self-doubt, but the emergency had long since passed. Now that she'd had time to reflect, to experience the long-term reality of being Batgirl, she wasn't sure her original impulse was wise. Oh, she was good enough as Batgirl, and getting better each time she braved the night, but was Batgirl good for her? It was such a dark secret, the beginning of a life lived in danger and shadows. And more exciting than anything I've ever known. She entered her room and flopped across the bed, sinking deeper into her confused and conflicted funk. If I'm not Batgirl, she thought, then who am I? Even as Barbara Wilson, she felt adrift in a strange land. Everything had changed. Her parents were gone. She was living with virtual strangers, except for Alfred, in a different country, a different city, and she would be going to a different school in the fall. Even this house seemed alien. The manor was so huge that she could still get lost looking for a bathroom. Her entire life had seemed foreign ever since she had arrived here from Oxbridge Academy in England. It was a whole new world, a dangerous one, and maybe donning the mantle of a weird creature like Batgirl was actually a logical response. But it was too late now. The die had been cast. When she'd let her mask fall to the floor of the cave, she had quit. She was Barbara Wilson again, plain and simple, a normal human being with normal troubles, but no secret identity. She let her head drop. Maybe all she needed was some quality time with her pillow. Barbara had just started dozing when there was a soft knock on their door. She roused herself. Uh, come in? Dick Grayson entered, looking nervous and not at all like the flashy, swaggering daredevil who wore the Robin costume. Hi, he said. Truce? Sure, she replied sheepishly. Sorry I shoved you like that back in the factory. Guess I've got a pretty hot head at times. Join the club, Dick smiled. Then he turned more serious. And speaking of similarities between us, I... Uh, I know exactly what you're going through. Trying to fit in as a new member of the team and all? Then he wasn't jealous, she thought, and his sincerity actually made him appealing. I went through it myself, Dick continued, when I first became Robin. And in some ways, I'm still going through it. Batman can be a real hard case, Barbara, but he has to be. What you're experiencing right now is understandable, but I think I've been around long enough to offer some advice. Barbara couldn't believe it. Just like that, Dick was playing the big shot, puffing himself up just so he could talk down to her, and I think she had almost fallen for his charm. I can help you avoid the mistakes I made, Dick was saying, like he was Santa Claus with a sack full of presents. I can ease the way, show you the ropes. Help you become a true member of the team. Barbara decided to shock him. Hold it, Dick, she said. What makes you think any of this is important to me? Who said I wanted to be on your precious team? Putting that mask on was a whim, not a career move. Go back to your little boys club down in that clammy cave and forget about Batgirl. You don't need her anyway. I'm Barbara Wilson again. And if you'll just butt out of my business, I could use some rest. Dick Grayson backed out of the room. 
His eyes were wide in disbelief. Bruce Wayne sat at his desk in the Manor's library, immersed in a thick text on electronics. He looked up as Alfred entered, bearing juice and sandwiches on a pewter tray. How's she taking it, Alfred? The older man set the tray on the edge of the desk. He still looked grave. Entirely too passive, sir, for my liking. Bruce strained half the juice in a single quaff. She'll come around, he said. She's got too much spine to take no for an answer. But Alfred was still troubled. Almost no is the answer she wants, sir. Bruce reached for a sandwich. Which would solve everything. He took a large bite, then shook his head as he chewed. But I don't believe it. She's already had a taste in the night, and she took to it like a shadow born. Whether she knows it or not, Alfred, there's no way she can turn her back on it forever. Then why put her through this game in the first place, sir? Bruce turned severe. It's not a game, Alfred. It's deadly serious, and that's the reason. But she's got to realize it and learn it for herself. I need partners, not children. He tacked the rest of his sandwich grimly. And yet, sir, Alfred said, you are a father figure to them. As Bruce Wayne, yes, and I'm here for them. But as Batman, I'm motherless and fatherless, and I've got to be childless. Batman is a scourge of the night, Alfred. A dark force of nature, which brooks nothing in its path. There are only two choices for Dick and Barbara. They either ride the same whirlwind, or they get blown away. Bruce finished the sandwich and turned back to his book. The conversation was over, and he had already begun something new. It was the way he did everything, fully, completely, and always with a fresh start. To be continued. And to continue on the theme of books, my literature recommendation, oh man, what a scary day, I have to tell you. There are two things that happened to me. Um, one of them was in a was in Starbucks and uh, Fridays I enjoy Friday mornings I wake up at five and by six ten fifteen or so I'm in Starbucks and I usually get I get like a grande latte and a uh, turkey bacon egg white sandwich and I sit there and I usually bring comics with me and and for an hour I sit there and eat and drink and just relax and sort of prepare for that last day I normally have AP morning sessions that day so there are some regulars like I'm a regular on that Friday though still they don't know my name yet which when when people know like what I'm going to order that will be like a wonderful victory but there's one man behind me that that always comes and then this other man that sometimes comes and this guy is talking about Obama I I can't remember what the thing of the day was or the month at that point like what had happened to make someone angry at Obama but he was saying like this crazy stuff that made me so scared just that Obama's is like a sleeper terrorist and you know we've heard all of this stuff before obviously I'm, I'm not going to give my political input or anything but what made me really nervous about it is the fact that I watch Homeland which I really enjoy and just like that there's like a sleeper terrorism there and he was able to sort of insinuate him and of course there's more than that but oh I don't know it just made me nervous because of like the possibility you know like me actually watching something sort of connecting that to those two things so um that was the first thing that was somewhat scary the other thing is that uh randomly a student one of my advisees a a a wonderful student wonderful latin student I very much enjoy uh, speaking with her she loves to read books she comes in with the giver by Lois 
Lowry. And this scared me so much because, no, I mean, it didn't scare me, but it was just like, oh my gosh, there it is. Because I remember very vividly when I was in second grade in the classroom at uh, Armour Elementary in New York, you know, there's a bookshelf and, and this is on it. And, you know, I always, I would look at it and see this old man and be like, I'm, I'm not reading that. So to have a student of mine, you know, however many years later, at least 10, just come up and, and bring this to me is, is, was wild, I guess. So it's a dystopian children's novel. And it's interesting because this is basically the thing that set the way for, for all sorts of dystopian fantasies like Divergent, which I don't, enjoy, which I did not enjoy or uh, Hunger Games, which I really admire and really like. So it's set in a society which really is first presented as a utopian society, but then it actually appears more and more dystopian. And it follows a boy named Jonas through the 12th year of his life. And the society has eliminated pain and strife by converting to sameness, uh, a plan that eradicated emotional depth from their lives. So Jonas is actually selected in their 12th year. They're selected to inherit some sort of position, which they'll be for the rest of their lives. And he inherits the position of receiver of memory, which is really special. And the person, he is a person who stores all the past memories of the time before sameness in case they're ever needed to aid in decisions that uh, others lack the experience to make. So Jonas meets the previous receiver and he's known as the giver and he's so confused and the giver is able to break some rules such as turning off the speaker that listens to people's conversations in their homes, lying to people of the community so they have a lot of freedom and many people give them respect. So Jonas receives memories from the giver and he also discovers knowledge and just this power and the people of his community are happy because they don't know of a better life and the knowledge of what they are missing out on really could create major chaos. So he faces this dilemma. Should he stay with this community and this safe, consistent, but shallow life um, that it offers? Or should he run away in pursuit of a life full of love and color, choices and knowledge, but also potentially full of, of danger? And there's also a, a baby that, that comes into play in the end as well. And there's actually um, three other books that it, it goes with and I've not read the other three but Gathering Blue, Messenger and Sun which I guess was just released but um, I mean it was good I, I I had a discussion with my with the eighth reader that gave it to me and she thought she assumed from this discussion that I didn't like it but I just had problems with they spend so long you know like half the book really setting up everything and then the short amount of period in this training setting up the community and, and all the rules and everything that goes along with it then the short amount of period with this training then all of a sudden Jonas gets his bright idea and like the plan happens and then you know I won't spoil what happens at the end but I just thought, you know, how does it, number one, how does the giver not even think of this plan beforehand? Why does he need someone else to help him with that? And just this transition was so quick and, and really not spending any time with that. I feel like there were, there could have been more to gain from spending time on his training and maybe seeing his effect on the community rather than just sort of running away. Uh, but I, I did enjoy it. I'm sorry that it took me so long to read it, but, you know, I don't think I would have really appreciated it anyways way back when when I was in second grade so The Giver by Lois Lowry, Lowry if you are interested um, of course you can you know Hunger Games I, I think I've recommended that before Divergent I did not enjoy I'm sure there may be people out there that um, enjoy that as well but it seems like this is the beginning of it all well 
thanks again you know special thanks to Donovan and Chris for for those reviews remember you can send any questions or comments to backworldoracle at gmail.com thanks to those of you that wrote in already uh, like me or like this on Facebook or follow this on Twitter at backworldoracle and like the Batman universe on Facebook as well once again thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And thanks also to bcbd.com, that's the big cartoon database for the episode summary of Booby Booby, who's got the ruby. I'm not sure when it's coming out. Actually, it should be out by the time this episode comes out, but I also recommend going to the Batman Universe and checking out the collected episode because uh, collected is another I guess I don't know how even you would call that so there are different sections of the Batman universe podcasts and there's the collected which is a special and we did back row year one so I, I do recommend that it was uh, myself and Donovan and Ed so check that out and uh, man it is it's starting to get down in the temperatures which is great and there have been two Saturdays where I've had to wake up early and go on a run at 8 in the morning it's been like 32 degrees so but you warm up morning lots of stuff there I signed up or I will sign up I guess to do a 10 hour in the spring and so I signed up to do a training program so I'm hoping hoping that it all lasts and then I just joined something that will actually track my progress and I guess I'll be like I'll come on to the radio a couple times and talk about what I'm doing so it'd be kind of embarrassing if I don't finish but I'm just hoping my knee holds out because uh, I thought maybe Maybe I fixed the problem, but it started to hurt during my, my previous Saturday run, so I've got to figure something out. But hope you guys are getting out there, and, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I always recommend you to uh, get out there and do something active, but I guess we'll see. My birthday's coming up, which is exciting, and uh, hopefully I can do something special there, and uh, Christmas is and Thanksgiving man I shouldn't go to Christmas right away but Thanksgiving so uh, if I don't I guess speak with you guys or, or you know talk to you through your earphones I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving and that you're able to spend it with loved ones you know just give thanks for the plenty that we have here in the United States and and just prayers to those who do not have as as much as we do and okay well until next time Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?